From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 continues to spread across the globe with cases in more than 100 countries. The disease is impacting people in a variety of ways, and today we'll take an epidemiological look with help from two professors from Falk College at Syracuse University. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Assistant Professor Dr. Brittany Kamush, who specializes in infectious disease epidemiology, and Associate Professor Dr. David Larson, who's an environmental epidemiologist. And they're both uh, also uh, affiliate faculty members at Upstate Medical University. Thank you both for coming to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now let's tell listeners, what is an epidemiologist? It's a special sort of uh, a specialization. Can you describe what you do? Yeah, so we study health trends in populations. And so of concern for us is, is the way that infectious disease and other pathogens spread and the way that we can control those and reduce that spread to keep populations healthy. So you're in high demand right now with coronavirus, right? Yes. yes. So tell me if I understand this correctly. What we're calling COVID-19 is a virus that is a cousin of the coronavirus that causes a common cold, right? Similar. So COVID-19 is actually the disease. So when you have the pneumonia or the cough or the fever, that's COVID-19. So the virus has actually been called SARS coronavirus 2. So it is somewhat genetically related to the SARS coronavirus 1, which caused an outbreak in 2003 and 2004. So this coronavirus originally it was known to infect animals, and this is now the first time we've seen it. Somehow it spread from an animal to a person, yeah. right? And, we and think so in China. A, yeah, so this is a, what's called a zoonotic event. And so you have a pathogen that is circulating in an animal system, and it makes a mutation or a leap into a human system. And then you have human-to-human transmission is happening now. And so the, all, all the science suggests that this happened at a seafood market in the city of Wuhan in Hubei Ch- province, China. Yeah, and, and probably late November, possibly early December 2019. From someone eating an infected animal or from so droplets the, from the animal getting on a person? It, it, I, we don't know exactly the transmission into the human. What happens is that the animals are kept in close proximity to each other, and so they start to infect each other. And at some point, the, it infects the human. I would suggest it's not likely due to consumption, but just by handling and being close to the animals. So with the mobile society we live in today, is it a given that this virus would spread all over the world, or did we do something wrong that accelerated that or made it happen? Well, so coronaviruses in general are a large family of viruses, and there are four coronaviruses that circulate in humans regularly and generally cause symptoms of the common cold. And there have been two known instances of coronaviruses mutating from an animal source into humans before this one. So that would be the SARS 2003-2004 and then MERS in 2014. And and the connectivity we see in the world today does facilitate the spread. Mm -hmm. Some public health systems have been able to prevent spread. So Taiwan has been able to link detailed uh, travel surveillance data with their health records and isolate individual patients who may have exposure to Hubei province and control the spread within Taiwan. So the, the human movement modeling suggests that there would be a big outbreak in Taiwan, but the public health uh, system has been able to control that and prevent that. 
So what is the proper level of concern for central New Yorkers? Is it just a matter of time before we're going to have cases in our community? I would say yes. I, I, I think it's coming. And yes. it's it's question about when it will arrive. And we need to think about trying to decrease the amount of transmission within our community so that when it does arrive, it does not overwhelm the health system. So we're already seeing um, schools closing or, or um, moving classes to online. Um, we're seeing rationing of toilet paper and hand sanitizer and things. I mean, our lives are changing already. What else is in store for us, do you think, in terms of what impact this might have on the so, daily life? So perhaps if we th take a look at the way China has handled this, we can understand a little bit better what we might handle, how we might handle this here in the United States. And so within the epicenter of, of where this occurred in Hubei province, they actually had a complete lockdown of individuals and restriction of movement. Now that has allowed them to control the virus spread there. Outside of Hubei province, Chinese citizens voluntarily and individually decided to self-quarantine or limit their social contacts. And that has allowed the health authorities to get in front of chains of transmission. If a, if a person with coronavirus arrives in Syracuse and the health department is able to find that person and then quarantine that person's contacts, then it won't spread. So if we can decrease our social contacts such that there are not too many arrivals of the virus into the community, then we can limit the spread and allow the health department to actually chase everything up and control the transmission that way. Because if an infected person uh, you know, has the virus, but it, they don't spread it to anyone, once their body hopefully beats this, the virus is gone from them, right? Yes, it's not that's the... That's what the current science suggests. Uh, looks like there's a good, strong immune response. Mm -hmm. And so that immune response then would prevent that person from getting the virus again. And also the virus would not be spread after that. So you use the term um, lockdown and we're hearing about quarantines. Um, we've seen communities in New York, in New Rochelle, um, basically do this sort of th a quarantine. Is there a difference between a quarantine or a lockdown? And there, there is a large difference, a very big difference. And I, and I believe in New Rochelle, they, they suspended mass gatherings, right? So they suspended the churches and the schools. They closed uh, businesses and offices within that one-mile radius. The people are still free to come and go in and out of New Rochelle, except for those that have been placed on quarantine due to exposure. And so those people are confined for 14 days to make sure they don't get sick. And so that's been a, a light version of a response. It's, it feels very heavy-handed to our American ideals and our, our freedoms, but that's not a geographical quarantine and definitely not a lockdown. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Drs. Brittany Kamush and Dr. David Larson. They're both epidemiologists from Syracuse University's Falk College, and we're talking about coronavirus. So a quarantine is more heavy-handed then, is what... It's supposed to be, right? So it depends on the level of enforcement. And so when we talk about voluntary quarantine, that's people monitoring themselves and monitoring their behavior and making sure that they stay away from other people. And so we have heard, at least anecdotally, of people in different areas supposedly under self-quarantine and then being spotted out in public. Um, 
But you can have more of an enforced quarantine where there's somebody else monitoring their movement and making sure that they stay away from other people. And then the other level is the scale that you do the quarantine. And so if you quarantine an individual or a household, that's one scale. But you can also quarantine entire regions. And so the country of Israel has set a quarantine around the entire country of Israel where anybody arriving has to wait 14 days in quarantine before they're allowed into the country. Well, we're already seeing in our community where uh, some events that, uh, you know, would be large gatherings are, are not going to be happening. Um, so is that sort of the same philosophy of keeping people who may have been exposed from spreading it? That's precisely the philosophy behind that. And so if you, every time that you encounter another person, you carry with yourself the probability of switching or, or exchanging viruses or bacteria that you both carry. And so every encounter you have with another person, you have a probability of encountering coronavirus. If society at large can decrease the number of contacts between individuals, we can decrease the, the exponential growth curve. And so it doesn't spread as rapidly and as quickly. And that will, allow, that will ensure that the health system does not get overwhelmed with people with viral pneumonia, the, the, the disease that this virus causes. Does it make a difference whether it's an indoor event or an outdoor event? Because I'm thinking of, you know, an outdoors, wide open air spaces or, or not. Does that make a difference for transmission? I don't think there's exact evidence per se, but when you think about at least outdoors, you have a possibility of being more spread out. Um, however, we're saying anyone within close contact can potentially get this disease, and right now we're defining close contact as within six feet. And so that is actually quite a large distance away. And so while theoretically outdoor events would seem safer, I don't think you're going to be at many events where you're six feet away from every other person. And then outdoor events that you mingle in a crowd, you're contacting a lot more individuals. So thinking about like something like the New York State Fair, that is an outdoor event, you're coming into a lot more contact with individuals in, within that six feet radius than you would at the theater. And so there's a lot of unknown about this, but unequivocally we can't say which one is safer mm -hmm. and that both are, are, are should be limited. Mm -hmm. I've heard it described that, uh, you know, the cruise ships are uh, floating Petri dishes because you've got all these people in a confined space. Um, same thing like with college dorms, right? Uh, airplanes but it seems like we're getting mixed signals on we're being told it's okay to fly but you're really isn't that kind of like a cruise ship in the in the sky so airplanes the air circulation within an airplane is different from the the circulation of people within a cruise ship and so the 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 spread of pathogens on a cruise ship appears to be more um appears to be quicker than the spread of pathogens on an airplane. That said, we should we should rethink stuff that we don't have to do. If we don't need to go somewhere, we should stay. If we don't need to go on a cruise, then we should probably not take that cruise. And if we don't need to go on a flight, we should probably not take that flight. Yeah. And I mean, also thinking about the amount of time you spend on a cruise ship is likely going to be much longer than the amount of time you spend on an airplane. And so that's part of the the factor with the cruise ships yeah, as well. Especially if you get stuck. Yes, Like many of these cruise stuck. ships are being, so it's not a time for a cruise right now. Mm -mm. So you mentioned six feet. Is that what, I've also heard the term social distancing, is that the recommended distance to keep from 
people if you're out in public? So that's based on the trajectory of droplets from from saliva as people talk and as they as they breathe. And so the it looks like it's a bit of a heavy droplet that need uh, somewhat heavy that its maximum distance is six feet. The term social distancing in general just means that you kind of decrease your social contacts. And so you can do that um, if you are in public by staying that six feet or not shaking hands, but you can also do social distancing by not hosting gatherings, not going to that party, not going to that event. So I know you said that if people don't need to travel, um, maybe they shouldn't. But, you know, we've got people who want to go to weddings or have booked a vacation and paid for it and will lose that money if they don't take it. And so, you know, people are having to make some hard decisions. What can you say to help people decide whether they need to take the trip or not? So you have to weigh your risk-benefit ratios, and that's going to to differ based on every individual situation. Um, so you have to think about your risk of not only getting the disease and having severe consequences from it, but then also your risk of bringing it back to your friends and family when you return from that trip. And if that is a risk that you're also willing to take. They're hard decisions. I had this mm-hmm. conversation with my mom today about my daughter's baptism at the end of May. And we don't know what we will do, but it's I'm leaning towards, you know, stay home and we'll do it here without everybody. And that's the reality, that's the that's the situation that we live in. So in terms of if you do take the trip and you come back, do you need to quarantine yourself if you've traveled some I mean certainly to a place that has a lot of coronavirus but anywhere right because you could have picked it up in the airport or whatever do you need to spend 14 days as we've heard um sort of self-quarantining and staying away from contacts I don't think there's official guidance on this. Um, obviously, if you have traveled to specific places, then you will need to quarantine for 14 days. Um, I don't, you know, a lot of places don't have that official warning yet, and so that's really kind of up to you, um, you know, what you think your risk is of having the disease and of transmitting it to those most vulnerable. So we do know that uh, those over 80 years old are most at risk of dying from this uh, COVID-19 and uh, people with underlying health conditions such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes are also much more at risk of dying and getting pneumonia from COVID-19. But when you think about the U.S. population, there's a significant proportion of people who have cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And so thinking about your risk of introducing the virus into those populations. Why do epidemiologists track infectious disease clusters? Why is that important to study? So we're, we're concerned about where the virus might go. The clinicians handle who has the virus and who's sick. And the epidemiologists try to understand, all right, here's where it might go based on where it's been. So ideally, we would have data on, on a person that is infected with coronavirus whether or not they had been, whether or not we know where that person was exposed to the coronavirus. In a cluster of cases, you have a number of people with the virus where you're not sure where it came from. And if you don't know where it's come from, then you, it's harder for us to control where it's going. So you really need to talk to the person to find out where they ate or where they, where they were before they 
were diagnosed, right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's a process called contact tracing, where you do histories of personal movement with people and encounters with individuals to try to identify sources of infection or exposure. So how far back do you have to go? So the incubation period for this coronavirus um, is about five to seven days. So the incubation period is the time from exposure to the virus until you start showing symptoms. And so when somebody's sick, we try to figure out exactly which day they started showing symptoms and then go back at least to the beginning of the incubation period. And so while the usual incubation period is five to seven days, it can be a little bit longer, and that's why we have that 14-day quarantine. Um, And so we at least need to go back to the beginning of the incubation period to try and figure out where they could have been exposed and all the contacts that they've had in that time. So you're asking them, uh, you know, where they work, their workplaces, Mm -hmm. or where they go to school, or what, where they shop, where they frequent, Mm -hmm. pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we and we've seen this in the media, you know, with the CPAC convention, the and Senator Cruz um, isolating himself, and other other Congress people isolating themselves after shaking hands with an individual who tested positive for coronavirus. And so that's that's the chain of transmission events and the the contact history. Through, that, that's established through contact tracing. So that's a case where um, there was a convention or, or gathering, and so there must be an epidemiologist involved in this. Someone came down with signs and symptoms and was diagnosed with having this coronavirus, and so that epidemiologist is going back and looking at who they mingled with, who they talked to, who they shook hands with. And, right. and, that, and that's the role of the county health department or the state health department where they're trying to go back and establish that and and provide guidance to those that may be exposed or the, to, to isolate or quarantine themselves. So there's some who believe that this is being blown out of proportion or that it's a hoax. And from what I've read, most of the people who become infected with this coronavirus will recover. So why are we making such a big deal out of it? Well, so this virus is more deadly than the flu. So we everyone thinks about the flu, compares it to the flu. That may or may not be a good comparison, right? This is coronavirus. This is different than the flu, but it is more deadly. So generally the flu has a 0.1 to 0.2 case fatality rate. So of all the people who get sick, 0.1 to 0.2% will die. With this coronavirus, we're seeing probably around 2 to 3% case fatality rate. So it is definitely much more severe in that sense than the flu. And then beyond the case fatality rate is the severe uh, intensive care required rate. And about 20% of people that get the virus are requiring intensive care, critical care, because they can't breathe. If we, if we don't do anything, when we get a spike of people with the virus, we could overwhelm the health system and we'd place doctors and nurses in the position of deciding who gets the ventilator making decisions. We have one ventilator to save a person. We have two or three people that need it. Well, which one of those do we choose? And that's the situation we do not want to be in. So that's why we need to take precautions now to try to decrease the spread of this virus. Is it more contagious than the flu? It appears or to do be. Do we know? Yes. It does appear to it be. It appears to be. There's, there's two instances that suggest that there's a conference the Biogen conference that led to set, one person led to 70 new infections a week later. And then from the state of Washington, the, the genetic evidence of the coronavirus suggests that all of the, the majority of cases in the state of Washington come from a single importation event. 
And so it looks like it's spreading about twice as more, twice as, twice as often as as the flu is, or as twice as quickly. So we don't have a cure or really treatment um, for this coronavirus, but we also don't have a, a cure for influenza other than the vaccine if people take it ahead of time. Um, but we, you don't see us shutting down schools when someone's diagnosed with influenza. So what is making the difference in this right now? Well, so there have been instances of schools shutting down from influenza, um, particularly during the 2009 H1N1. Quite a few schools in New York City actually did shut down when we had that introduction of a new type of flu virus. Um, I believe places like Japan have um, procedures in place where when at least 10% of a class is absent due to illness, they do close down the school uh, to try and control spread. So we do see kind of precautions like that. Um, And and then this is 20 times more deadly than the flu. Right. And then the severe illness rate is higher than the flu. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're talking about a one in five probability of an adult, get, or an older adult, aged maybe 35, 40 and above, of getting coronavirus and actually ending up in the hospital. And that's a huge, huge risk. And so that's, that's why the concern. Do we know why this doesn't seem to be um, impacting children as much? So some theories are, and we don't know for sure, this is still evolving, but some theories are because of the coronaviruses that regularly circulate in humans, that the children have somewhat more immunity because of being exposed to those other similar coronaviruses um, seems to be preventing them from at least um, showing signs of illness. There is recent evidence that shows that they do get infected at similar rates when they've been exposed. They just don't seem to show signs of the COVID-19, the illness. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm here with two epidemiologists from the Falk College at Syracuse University, Drs. David Larson and Brittany Kamush. I want to ask you about testing. And since we don't really have a treatment for coronavirus, why is testing needed since finding out whether this person has it or not isn't going to change like their treatment, right? So from the, from the standpoint of controlling the spread, that's where the testing comes in. If we can confirm that this person does not have coronavirus, that's a wonderful confirmational finding. We don't have to worry about the spread and do the contact tracing with that. When we confirm that the person does have coronavirus, that's where the contact tracing begins and trying to test their associates and their, their colleagues. Let me ask you, how do decisions get made um, for canceling events? Uh, is there an epidemiologist involved in a community or a business's decision to scale things back or cancel things or postpone them? Hopefully, yes. That's um, not always, um, but hopefully that there is somebody, you know, an epidemiologist or a public health official that the business is consulting to make that decision. And the the CDC will give national guidelines, Mm -hmm. and then the state health department gives state guidelines, and then the the county health department gives county guidelines. And so businesses can look to their their uh, respective health departments to understand what they should or should not do mm-hmm. or what is recommended at this point. I saw coverage uh, overnight that there are some restaurants taking people's temperatures before they let them in to order. Are, I mean, are those sorts of things that sort of bridge between, you know, staying open and being able to serve 
you know, food versus shutting down entirely. I mean, are there thing, measures like that that can be taken that are effective? Well, fever is the most common symptom of people with the coronavirus, and so I can understand the reasoning behind that. Um, I'm not certain how effective that is to decrease the spread. I think what you see there is is the, the tension and the desire to to do what we can to decrease the spread of the disease and then the necessity to to continue life. And so we have businesses and we have uh, jobs and those need to continue. And so I can definitely understand the, the rationale for doing something like that. Mm-hmm. But then can't people be infected before the fever is apparent? Like, could you be carrying the coronavirus and not have a fever yet? Yeah, so the most current evidence suggests that most of the transmission from coronavirus uh, occurs after a person starts showing symptoms. Okay. Um, not, it is still possible that you can transmit the virus to other people before you show symptoms, but it seems at least at this point that most of the transmission is driven by people who are already showing symptoms. Is it true that warmer weather may help reduce the number of cases of coronavirus? We really don't know. So other coronaviruses that commonly circulate in humans do show this seasonality where they kind of peak in the winter months in northern hemispheres and go away in the summertime. But we, this virus is so new, we really do not know how it will behave uh, in future months. And then to reiterate that warm weather won't solve the problem, Mm -hmm. if it does decrease transmission, it will delay the onset of the epidemic to the fall. And so it's not a solution to to hold our breath and wait for the summer. Right. So if we do see seasonality, right, that means it will be seasonal and come back in the fall. Now, isn't that what happened with the Spanish flu in 1918? Yeah, it came roaring back in the fall, mm-hmm. and October was a very deadly month mm-hmm. for the for Americans. So can you project the timeline, or are there just too many unknowns at this point? Too many unknowns, I think, at this yeah. point. And, and there are some modelers that have, have started projections, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, it looks like we're in the initial phases of growth here in the country, mm-hmm. and so I would expect over the next few weeks to see increasing number of cases. Will we need a vaccine before we get control of this? That depends on how the next few months go and how things kind of play out with the virus. And, you know, if it kind of burns through and infects everyone and then goes away um, as, you know, SARS, you know, had caused the outbreak and epidemic in 2003 and 2004 and then disappeared. We haven't seen it again Um so if we see continuing transmission and if it kind of keeps going all, all summer and comes back in the fall and the next year and the next year, then yes, we will need a vaccine. But we really don't know how this virus will behave. If there were to be a vaccine developed, how soon would we have it to where we could offer it to people? I've heard estimates of a year to 18 months. And the, with vaccine uh, distribution, to understand that the first, pers- the first people that vaccines go to are the health workers. And so once the vaccine is identified as being effective, it would enter into production and the first produced units would go to healthcare workers. And then we would look at vulnerable populations and we'd scale up. And so it, it would, even after a vaccine is developed, there's still a delay for the general citizen to get the vaccine. 
Now, I've heard this called by some a, a pandemic. Um, so I don't know if that's just splitting hairs on what we're calling it. But when we have this threat um, in the community, for people who are not affected by it, who don't, don't you know, get coronavirus but are living in this community, do they need to make some changes? Do they need to put off uh, routine medical care? Do they need to maybe not go grocery shopping as frequently? Are there some things that they can do to help out? So the, the term pandemic refers to how widespread on a global level an infectious disease is. And so you reach pandemic levels when you have sustained transmission on more than two continents. And it looks to me personally, although the WHO has not declared this to be a pandemic, it looks to me like we have sustained transmission in Asia and in Europe and in North America here with the United States. So I do think we are at pandemic levels, but the term pandemic doesn't necessarily translate to community risk. And so our risk of our community is dependent on how socially connected our community is and then the probability of coronavirus arriving in our community and spreading from there. So if we can decrease the connectivity, the social connectivity within our community, then that will decrease the ability of the virus to spread within our community once it does arrive. So people who live in a rural area already are safer just because they don't have as many people around them, right? Yeah, yeah, rural areas are safer. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that there's uh, sort of some hoarding of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. I mean, people might be going kind of over the edge, right? But are there some practical things that we should be doing to get ready for what looks like, you know, we could have some of these cases in our community and what do we need to do to be ready? So the CDC actually has some great guidelines about emergency preparedness. And I think they were generally developed for uh, natural disasters, hurricanes, snowstorms, and so you can check out the CDC website with some advice about the, you know items that you should have around the house to prepare. Not everything may be 100% relevant to a disease outbreak compared to a natural disaster, but it's a good place to start um, and to start thinking about um, preparedness. And a little plug for local agriculture. Local agricultural and food systems are less um, are more robust to, to natural disasters or national disasters. And so if there's a disruption in the food distribution system, our local farms are less likely to be affected. So get a community shared agriculture going and support our local farms. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Brittany Kamush and Dr. David Larson, epidemiologists from the Falk College at Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.